0: I realized I had this moment because my dad was living in Alpine, Texas when the, when the, when Texas blacked out. And I was like, there's no such thing as a strong country with a weak grid that just like doesn't happen. And because I had done all of these historical deep dives on top of that, I started to really understand like inertia and entropy in like historical terms. And I was like, if this stuff keeps going wrong, it's not clear that there's like an off ramp to that, you know, like. I think what started to give me a more conservative mindset is that I started to find things I wanted to conserve. And one of them was the grid. I was like, all of this depends on that. You know, like if we get this wrong, nobody knows how to put that back together.
1: Hi everyone welcome back to moment of truth the podcast of american moment my name is sir rob sharma i'm the president of american moment and i'm joined by
2: nick solheim the coo of american moment
1: with his very fresh fits he looks so handsome go watch us <laughs> on youtube he 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 looks distinguished, even. He's got glasses. He's wearing an Oxford cloth button-down shirt. It's it's really quite something to look at. Uh, the caveman has become uh, the office cell. Anyway, we had today a fantastic episode of the show with someone who feels like is wildly overdue for an episode with us, but he lives in uh, the city known as Chirac, and so it's a little bit difficult to get him out here. We had on today Emmett Penny, who's a fantastic authoritative voice on everything energy-related, but before we get to to that, as always, be sure to go to AmericanMoment.org. There you can find all of the programming we have going. Um, Our programming is now expanding year-round. You can find more information about that on our website. You can find the backlog of this show. You can fill out AmericanMoment.org slash join to talk to us about how to get you involved in politics, or if you're already in D.C., how to augment and boost your career and get you into positions of real authority as quickly as possible. Uh, Everything is crazy and growing here at American Moment, and you can keep up with everything that we're doing on the website. this week, we were very glad to have on uh, Emmett Penny, who is an energy writer and historian. He's the editor-in-chief of Grid Brief, a daily energy newsletter subscribed to by thousands of politicians, investors, and industry professionals all over the world. And he also hosts the Nuclear Barbarians podcast slash Substack. We had a fantastic discussion about everything about the grid. And as a Texan myself, this is really important to me because our grid is degrading rapidly, and the grid all over the country is degrading rapidly. And turns out, life gets pretty messy and bad if that is the case. So um, we had a fantastic discussion uh, where we dive deep into that and every energy source under the sun and and the pros and cons of each of them. I thought it was just a fantastic discussion. Nick, what did you think?
2: Well, we all went and saw Oppenheimer and now we're nuclear pilled. So true. Nuke episode after nuke episode. That's right. Um, yeah, man. And it's super cool. Really interesting uh, follow on Twitter. We've, we've had some... Uh, great conversations before he showed up to our office earlier today in pit vipers um which was an awesome aesthetic choice i tried to get him to wear him on the show but um he didn't think it would it would work so yeah fantastic episode um I I don't know how much more material we could cover on nuclear in like a month.
1: (laughs) Yeah. So we will uh, we'll take a chill pill on that for for the foreseeable future. But this uh, should have given you plenty of content along with the episode we did with Isaiah Taylor. We will go now to Emmett Penny. Howdy, Emmett. Thank you for coming on the podcast.
0: Good to be here, fellas.
1: We always like to hear about how our guests got to where they are today. And you have a particularly strange story for how exactly you ended up doing conservative, libertarian, pro-human-ish energy policy. Tell us the tale. How did, how did Emmett Penny become the public policy mind that he is today?
0: Yeah. Um, I uh, Even I don't fully know the answer to that question uh, is the realist answer. But um, to talk a little bit about my background, I grew up in the suburban Midwest. I have I grew up Catholic, but when you grow up in the suburban Midwest, you're basically like functionally Protestant. Mm-hmm. Like that's the way that that works in America. Um, and, uh, you know, I went to Catholic school for most of my life. Uh, very luckily, Jesuit educated on a scholarship. i still grateful for that wonderful education. Actually, it pays dividends every day. Um, my parents sacrificed a lot for that. Um, and then after that, I was like, well, I don't want to be told what to do anymore. Um, cause I was never very good at that, uh, trying not to bump the table, but, um, so I was like, I want to be able to do whatever I want. And I ended up studying poetry at Bennington college where you get to sort of like build your own major. And that's what I cared about. All I cared about, I didn't really pay attention to politics. You know, I grew up in a democratic household. Like that's not surprising, you know, um, my dad is from the South and my mom is from people who were basically brought into uh, the state via like New Deal and post-war programs. Right. So like the Democratic loyalty is sort of baked in to all of that. Um, and my parents were very liberal. Like I went to a daycare that was run by Bill Ayers's sister-in-law. Wow. Hmm. Shaza Boudin was one of the counselors there. Like, I've known Shaza Boudin since I was in like diapers, <laughs> basically, um, is, is the story there. Right. So, um, you know, after Bennington, I moved to uh, Florida where I was really, really broke for a long time. And that like totally radicalized me um, leftward. You know, I, uh, there's nothing like working three jobs and like barely moving above the poverty line in a state like florida that makes you be like okay some things are like seriously wrong here and i think that's what really started to activate me politically where i was like i feel like i need to have answers to like what's going on and after that i got a job a friend helped me get a job writing common core curriculum for the state of new york uh, which was the whole other experience but it afforded me the time to be able to like start reading and figuring out what happened to me there so i read like capital by marks and i was like i think i buy this but i don't know if i do and i had paid off my student debts and stuff like that through the um very well-paying common core job and i was like i'm never doing that again what should i do and a friend of mine was like you should check out saint john's you should just like sit in a classroom for like a couple years and cool out because you're very weird and angry right now and i was like that's a good idea because i've read marks now but i don't know the full breadth of the tradition. So I went to St. John, Santa Fe, you know, like did that whole thing came out of there. I was just like, all right, I'm joining the DSA, the democratic socialist America, Bernie's out there. I'm going to, I think I'm convinced by all this stuff. I'm going to make this stuff happen. And that's when I started to like write essays and sort of have, figure out what my voice was politically, which at the time, like wasn't particularly original. If I'm, totally honest. Like I was basically about as angry and as, uh, cynical and overeducated sounding as any other listener of Chapo trap house at the time. Right. (laughs) Like that's sort of my shtick. but I ended up writing this article called, uh, lecture porn, the vulgar art of liberal narcissism, where I sort of talked about like, you know, those moments where like John Stewart will pan to the camera, you know, and he'll be like, look, you listen up, bread state America. Like we pay for all your shit or whatever he, he would say, you know, and that that was the sort of self-congratulatory feedback loop that created confirmation bias that kind of led to the Democratic Party's downfall in 2016. Mm. And somebody really liked that piece. And his name was Michael Schellenberger. And he DM'd me and he said, well, uh, hey, I liked your piece. What's up? What are you doing right now? And I lied and I said nothing because what I was actually doing was working at a bookstore in downtown Santa Fe. But I was like, this guy has like 20,000 followers or something. I'm like, now he has like way more than that. He's like a famous person now, basically. Um, But this was back in the day. And I was like, I was just like a primitive lobby, you know? And I was like, okay, uh, yeah, yeah, I'm not doing anything. And he was like, what's your number? And I realized that like, I still hadn't replaced my phone that had broken because I didn't have the money for it. So I just gave him the phone number for the bookstore and made the shipping (laughs) guy cover for me at the front register. And he gets on the phone with me. He was like, so what do you care about? And I probably give him some overcooked like political philosophy thing. And he's like, yeah, I don't care about any of that. (laughs) What do you think about nuclear energy? And I was like, that's bad. Like, we don't even do that anymore, right? Like, who does that? And he was just like, you're wrong. You should read these books and then come out to uh, California and meet my whole crew. And I was like, okay. So... I flew out there right after doing a the DSA National Convention in 2017 and then like met all of these people who'd become my friends uh, later on because I didn't get a job working for him, but I got like successfully nuke pilled by like all of the engineers and whatever he had on staff, that like explained how it worked and you know all of that stuff. And uh, my buddy Mark Nelson, um, who's over at Radiant Energy Group now, uh, was like instrumental in like sort of changing how I looked at the world because I was very much like a philosophy type guy. And I just remember him like banging on his desk when he first met me and grabbing it. And he was like, this is what matters. Yeah. These things are what matters, like how it gets made that matters most. And I was like, "Whoa, this dude's really like intense. You know, he was like reading me the riot act. Um, and then it took a few years, you know, like, uh, for me to link up with Michael again, we maintained a friendship, And then I got, I was working for a tutoring company in Los Angeles and uh, it went under and my wife and I both worked for it. And she was like, well, I'm going to keep being a tutor, but you've only been doing this for three months and you don't have clients. So you need to figure out what you're going to do because we just put down on a lease. And I was like, oh, so I called Michael and I was like, Hey, remember when uh, you thought you might want to hire me all those years ago? I don't have a job. So you should maybe do that now. And he was like, actually, I'm going to write a book right now. So like, I'd love to hire you. And that book became Apocalypse Never, which was like the smash hit. So I worked on that. And then he brought me back later um, to work as a contractor on San Francisco. But it was really working on Apocalypse Never and sort of like learning what was wrong with the climate perspective and then starting to get like more serious grounding in the material realities of energy and stuff. But it didn't. Like I had to launch this whole other podcast on my own called exhaust that was about like why nothing feels possible. And me and my co-host would do these like deep dives into industrial history and all sorts. of, I had to do this big, I'm living on unemployment during COVID like self-education thing where I was like, what the hell happened to the industrial base? How does all of this work? Like no one tells you all of this, you know, or at least no one from where I was from told me any of this. And that's really where it came from. Like at some point. I crossed the threshold where I was like energy is the thing that I want to talk about. And that happened right around, I'd say the Texas blackouts of 2021, because it was when I started to put together like an understanding of what was going wrong with the grid, what was going wrong, like industrially in a broader historical suite sweep in America. And then like seeing where I could fit into that, you know? I was like, I don't want to be a lefty anymore. I don't want to talk about all of these types of things that are like really annoying to me at this point. I just want to talk about the explanatory power of this stuff because I realized I had this moment because my dad was living in Alpine, Texas when the, when the, when Texas blacked out and I was like, there's no such thing as a strong country with a weak grid that just like doesn't happen. And because I had done all of these historical deep dives on top of that, I started to really understand, like, inertia and entropy in, like, historical terms. And I was like, if this stuff keeps going wrong, it's not clear that there's, like, an off-ramp to that. You know, like, I think what started to give me a more conservative mindset is that I started to find things I wanted to conserve. And one of them was the grid. I was like, all of this depends on that. You know, like if we get this wrong, nobody knows how to put that back together.
1: Yeah. So then you created Grid Brief, which is basically the home for everything that you think and say on this stuff. Um, you know, I, I think a lot of people when they think about energy policy, they think about where the energy comes from wind, solar, nuclear, mm-hmm. oil, and mm-hmm. gas. There's plenty of food fights in the public square on that. And we will talk about that, but why does the grid itself matter? What is the energy infrastructure that undergirds our country that people pay even less attention to than the energy issues? And why do they matter?
0: Yeah. So I would say like the grid, I was actually just talking to like somebody who's become a mentor to me, Robert Bryce, who everybody should go listen to his Power Hungry podcast and read his books. Robert's great. Um, And one of the things that he and I were talking about is that like The grid isn't just the electrical system, right? Which is generation, transmission, and distribution. So it's like the power plant, the power lines, and then how it gets into your house, you know, or whatever, or how it gets to the factory. All of that's important, obviously. But it's also like a bunch of natural gas pipelines. It's also a rail system that brings all the coal to wherever it is. Like it's all of the... Well, because New England's in a particularly tight spot and refuses to build pipelines (laughs) to a shale formation. It's all of the LNG cargo that shows up in New England and stuff like that. It is all of these things sort of put together that give us everything we do every day. Right. So. Like a thought experiment would be to ask yourself at the end of the day, what did I do today that didn't require electricity? And try to list the things. You know, and it's probably gonna be like none, right? Like no. all of it requires even my toothbrush is electric. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Like all of it requires that. And it is really like the I call it the industrial commons. It is it's not necessary. it's obviously not public. This is America. We only have a few public and municipal things, but it is this intricate tapestry of about three thousand different Organizations and stuff like that, and three different interconnections that have multiple layers of regulation that all work together fitfully, frustratingly, to make sure that we can maintain the standard of wealth that we
1: have today. And so, what are the biggest threats to our grid and its security in the modern era?
0: Yeah. Uh, So, that's a big question. There's a sort of, it's important to understand a little bit about the history of it. Um, so obviously electricity comes around as cutting edge technology in the Victorian era, basically. Um, and America is beginning its transition in that moment from being the largely agrarian, more Jeffersonian, I would say Republic, uh, to something that had big industrial systems. And that would have a lot of, political and I would say like political economic fallout, but physics (laughs) tends towards scale and electricity was really good for that, right? So as soon as we could start to build power plants and as soon as we had alternating current, which allowed us to move power longer distances, we started to build these large systems and they grew into regulated monopolies in the 30s. Um, out of deep frustration with his experience with regulated monopolies, uh, in New York state, FDR went to create public entities and to do some rural electrification. Um, but those were never meant to be like a total socialist takeover of the entire system. He described them as like a, a yardstick and a switch, right? So you're supposed to be able to like measure whether or not private utilities were being honest or discipline them if they weren't. And that's, that's how that was supposed to work. But out of this, the administrative state is born, right? And what happens with nuclear energy is the perfect example. So the plutonium for the Manhattan Project is made by the Tennessee Valley Authority. And it is made by the coal there, right? So it starts to strip mine for coal to power making plutonium. And then when they want to figure out how to do peaceful uses after the war... David Lilienthal, who was the first, like the head honcho at the TVA, becomes the first commissioner of the Atomic Energy Commission, and that has a direct relationship with the utilities. So I'm trying to paint this picture here of the way in which our extended republic collided into the industrial demands of the electric system. And by the time the '70s rolled around, people both left and right, like you can read like Barry Goldwater, speech writer, writer Carl Hess, and he sounds like. Amory Lovins over at the Rocky Mountain Institute, you know, famous lefty. Um, And they wanted to move away from the administrative state into something else. And Carter would be the fulcrum around which that happened because he had to deal with stagflation. He had to deal with energy crises. And the way that the sort of new deal order was constructed on this corporatist compact was like coming apart. And a lot of the regulations simply weren't working anymore. So in the 80s and the 90s, the by the 90s it's like enron and the environmental movement are like we need to deregulate electricity we can't have these monopoly utilities anymore there needs to be room for the little guy and by the little guy they really meant natural gas and solar and wind and that's that's what they wanted because they knew that for monopoly utilities there was no point in really investing in any of that stuff um natural gas sure but as far as like wind and solar goes You don't really get a lot out of the rate base in that. And also they're a pain to deal with because they're intermittent. So especially at the time, like even more so than now. So you have all these new load balancing challenges that if you're a monopoly utility, you're like, I'm not trying to invite more problems into my life. Like everybody already hates me, you know, so no thanks. But they knew if they pried open these markets into basically like big auction houses through a series of FERC orders in the nineties, uh, we could perhaps get reliably cheap power and peel back some of these administrative state layers and sort of these like state corporate compacts to create a more competitive system, right? A more like libertarian way of looking at it. And I don't mean that pejoratively, I mean it, you know, descriptively. So that brings us to today, right? After the fracking boom, after all of this natural gas is like 40% of the electricity production on the grid last year. What are the threats to the grid now? Well, None of that worked. <laughs> Basically, <laughs> what happened is there is uh, we created yet more layers of bureaucracy and difficulty and complication in running the electricity system in the hopes of creating, uh, I think it was like in FERC order, 888, reliability at least cost. And we've done neither of those two things. So the grid is starting to become more unreliable. And there are several reasons for that. So. One of the reasons is that these markets, right, so the way that they work is they're sort of like auction houses, right, and everybody bids in to supply power like five minutes, 30 minutes, hour, day ahead, week ahead, and then you have like seasonal stuff, right? Uh, They all bid in to supply power. This is in like megawatt hours or? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, think about it as like meeting demand. Like the grid operator is like, oh, okay, we need like X amount of power. Who's going to give that? And all these people are like, I can give it to you at this much. I can give it to you at this much. I can give it to you at that much. And then it picks one of the lower ones and then sort of the next three or four after that. And then the higher price stuff gets cut out. Right. And that's how it delivers least cost be, through competition. Like that's the idea. I mean, I'm sort of butchering it a little bit, but if we got really into the weeds here, we'd be here all day. And this would basically be like taking an ambient for your listeners. <laughs> um, but that's the general premise. What that incentivized is a lot of heavily subsidized wind and solar that distorted the price signal and made it look like they were producing free power, or sometimes like, I'll pay you to take this type of power. And the natural gas turbines that could catch up to meet demand when the wind stops blowing or the sun sets, because the turbines can just Ramp up more than like a coal plant or a nuclear plant could. Over time, that has had the impact of shoving more and more coal and nuclear off the grid. And this wasn't a surprise, right? Like, this is when you see the Enron documents, when you see what Aubrey McClendon's talking about with natural gas in the early 2000s, and why he gives the Sierra Club like $25 million to go after coal is because they know what it's going to replace. Right, like that's mm. this. So this is this is why they're doing this, and it did have a salutary effect, by the way, <clears> bringing down emissions. But what it also did is it fragilized our whole system because now each section of the grid that's in one of these markets is seeing its what's called base load plants. Those are the big, reliable coal and nuclear plants shut off because they can't compete with free, free. In air quotes, Um, and they can't do the volatility. So they can't make money. So they're not worth keeping around for the people that own them. Um, And everybody is starting to depend on exports from each other. Right. So we're in DC right now. DC is in PJM, which is, I think, the largest power market in the world and definitely the largest in the country. PJM stretches all the way to where I live in Illinois right? To give you an example, so that's 13 states. I think they serve like 60 million people in the US. And they put out a report in February that says all our coal plants and all this stuff is shutting off. Uh, we're expecting like, I don't know, 40 gigawatt shortfalls uh, by the end of the decade, which is enough power to serve 32 million households here. They're about to lose like 25 or maybe a fifth of their installed capacity and nothing can Replace
1: it, and that's because they're no longer market viable.
0: Yeah, they're not market viable. Or, I mean, you know, uh, the regulations have ratcheted up. Certainly, the new EPA guidelines on emissions will have take a scythe to both uh, coal and natural gas, and we can get into some of that later. Um, but yeah, generally, it's they're no longer market viable, and nothing is coming on fast enough to replace it, right? Because wind and solar can't replace it, and it's not just PJM, right? MISO, its neighbor, which stretches from Minnesota to Louisiana in its upper region, is having the same problem. California is having to keep on uh, a ton of dirty gas plants in violation of some of its own environmental law to keep the lights on. You know, Texas has issued three conservation orders uh, this summer to get people to reduce uh, using power to keep the grid safe. and. Two of them happened within the last week, as of this recording, I believe. And then when you look at New England, New England's in the same problem. It is burning oil to get through the winters, um, but they don't know what they're going to do. You know, in terms of where's their power going to come from if they can't import from PJM? MISO relies on PJM for when its wind fleet fails. Mm. You know, so it's basically what this woman Meredith Angwin, who writes this book, shorting the grid. Uh, on this who's a dear friend of mine uh, she's I call her the Bubby of the grid she's a sweet old Jewish grandma in Vermont Who's an engineer and she wrote, wrote a book that explains how all these markets work but she calls it the fatal trifecta which is over reliance on just-in-time natural gas uh, an overabundance of intermittent resources wind and solar and an overdependence on your neighbors if everybody pursues all of these policies at once all their renewable portfolio standards that take advantage of all those sweet, sweet production tax credits you know that have been lavishly doled out to them, they're going to be running into these problems. And then we can start to see as grid operators and as the North American Reliability Electric Reliability Corp, NERC, which is the nonprofit that's nonpartisan and looks over all of this stuff for the federal government, we will see it becoming more and more vulnerable to simple fluctuations in weather. So how did these, um,
2: incentive structures for wind and solar in particular grow over to, like you said, from the nineties to today to where producing energy is technically, you know, air quotes free.
0: Free. Yeah. So I think that, that my understanding of that is that really starts to take off in the two thousands, um, in, I mean, you know, Obama has his big climate policy. They start uh, creating production tax credits for wind and solar. And I mean, they've always lived off of subsidy to some level. I mean, Warren Buffett fam- famously says, the only reason you build a wind turbine is for the tax credit. Hmm. Like, otherwise, it doesn't make any sense. Is this something Republicans were supporting sure, at the yeah, time? Sure. Yeah, like, yeah, pretty yeah, probably. yeah. Yeah, look, I mean, like when you look at uh, Texas, Republicans might have like a problem with a certain level of renewables being on the grid, but- Very few will say we should have none in my experience, you know, Um, and a lot of these pushes towards restructuring the markets, the the electricity system. It was a bipartisan affair, you know, big problems are always bipartisan. That's the way it works. (laughs) Right. Because like our our political system is built to just agree to whatever is like maximally overlapping in the Venn diagrams of the parties and to not do anything about anything outside of that Venn diagram. Right. So whenever we have a big problem like this, it's usually because there has been some sort of consensus that has brought it about. It's it would be sick if it was just partisan and you could be like, all we have to do is like rinse our enemies and then, you know, we fix it all. But that's not really how this is going to work.
1: When you say that um, you know, we're in this dangerous trifecta. Is it because there is all sorts of correlated risk across the entire country? Like anything? Because if if these neighboring um, parts of the grid are reliant on each other, a cascading failure in any one of them could easily mean that that all of them are having the same issues and then suddenly there's no power. Yes. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Because I I know that like, for instance, I believe Texas during peak um, uh, production times has to like pay other grids to take their excess energy off of their load, unless I have that completely wrong.
0: I mean, Texas is a weird case because Texas is technically an Island grid. So like one of the things that happened during the ice storm, Uri right. Where Texas had those really tragic blackouts where many people died. Um, is that everybody was like, oh, if they could import power, they'd be, they'd be fine. You know, but that wasn't true. You know, everybody else, I mean, it was a huge Arctic storm that covered like the entire third of the country. Yeah. Everybody else was, they didn't have anything to spare, first of all. So Texas is actually like a really weird, uh unique market to pay attention to, right? Because they don't have these things called like seasonal capacity markets where three years ahead of the time they have an auction to see which plants are going to be available for a difficult winter season three years out from now, right? Like that's what PJM and a few others have. They have seasonal capacity markets. Texas prides itself on being energy only. and What that means is that they're just doing it real time, baby. They're not doing any of this other stuff that like rewards incumbent utilities for having, you know, reliable power plants around. They're they're doing that for real. Um, We'll do it live. Yeah, they're doing it live, (laughs) you know, like that's what's going on there. Um, so I don't really know about like what the export game in Texas is like, because they also aren't necessarily under the aegis of FERC in the same way that the other, uh, markets are in the rest of the country because it's Texas and Texas wants to do whatever it wants, you know, which is like what I love about Texas. But I've talked to energy traders in ERCOT. That's like the name of its grid operator. And they're like, yeah, I don't know what's going on, (laughs) 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 you know, um, And there are all sorts of like complex reasons for that, that like it seems like they don't even completely understand. And so I don't totally understand it. I mean, that's part of the problem, right? So we look at some of the rules and regulations for running the grid. Part of it is that it is just become so difficult to manage a system that complex. So FERC is trying to put in these new rules about citing transmission and stuff like that. And the new rule that they have is over a thousand pages. It's like, okay, how many of those do you guys have? And then how many lawyers do you need to figure that out? And then how do you coordinate that? And we're dealing with multiple layers of stuff here, right? So, you know, I was talking to the chief nuclear officer at Entergy, a big, you know, uh, utility out in the South and the Midwest. And I was like, how are you guys doing this? Because you have your footprint, but then you have have to work with a bunch of different state governments, but then you have to work with the federal government, and then you also have to work with the grid operator and the power market. And understandably, the only answer she could give me is transparency is very important. (laughs) How the hell do you answer that question, you know, in like a succinct way. Right. So I think that that's also part of what's happening now too. It's like the overcomplication of what used to be a simple system. And this is the fatal irony of restructuring is that it created like many other things in this country. It became a jobs program for lawyers.
1: So one of the biggest trends in energy policy over the last couple of decades has been an enormous amount of pressure by both state, local, and federal government to jack up the amount of wind and solar that constitutes the grid. Why is that bad? What are the attendant consequences that come out of it?
0: Okay, so here's the biggest issue. Uh, Electricity needs to be reconciled at all times. So supply and demand need to meet each other at all times. Every single microsecond of every single day.
1: And if it falls short, you get blackouts. And if it is too much, you get what?
0: Yeah, same thing. Okay. Like it overloads the system, yeah. right? Like, so you have to keep it around 60 Hertz. That is 50 in Europe. It's 60 here. I don't know why. It's just the way it is. Um, and it has to stay harmonized, right? So that's load balancing. You're always balancing supply and demand. So that is a system that prizes stability. Now, let's say you're going to start adding resources to its mix while subtracting others, right? So you're going to subtract stable things and you're going to add unstable things. Well, then that ability to harmonize is going to get increasingly difficult. And once you get past 20, maybe 30% renewables penetration on the grid, you start to run into really gnarly challenges for satisfying demand with supply at all times because you suddenly have entire swaths of your grid that will just shut off all at once, right? Like when solar, when the sun goes down, it's like a bunch of different power plants shut off all at once. So what are you going to do to solve that problem? Yeah. So in California is a great example, right? They call it uh, the duck curve, right? So it's like solar is really big during the day. And so you see... Natural gas dip really low, right? And then as soon as sun sets, natural gas like rockets up to meet like eighty percent of demand or something like that. Mm. You know, like that's how that looks, and that's actually really hard on the hardware of the turbines to like meet that.
1: Um, can Can you explain a little bit about the mechanics of that?
0: Yeah. So from my understanding of it, as somebody who's not an engineer but who has t- asked engineers to explain it to my d- ass, um, multiple times, um, it's sort of like doing start and stop traffic with your car. Mm right? You do that for long enough, it just beats the hell out of it. Same thing, mm-hmm. right? As Same. opposed
1: to keeping, you know, 40 mile an hour consistently. Yeah, consistent or whatever. Terror.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's like the difference between like cruising down open route 66 and being stuck in Los Angeles gridlock.
1: Mm-hmm. You know? While like, also trying to speed up to 120 miles an hour through yeah, traffic lights. Exactly. <laughs>
0: yeah, exactly. That's that's perfect. Um, And the problems, it seems like start to get like exponential after that certain level of 20, 30% penetration. That's why it's like sort of a dirty secret. California has like diesel backup equal to like 15% of its grid capacity. Wow. And one of the things I'm not sure, so people, somebody could fact check this for me, but like I was talking to somebody the other day who knows more about the Cal, Cal, California system than I do, CAISO, and they were like, yeah, I don't think California environmental law demands that you count backup diesel emissions as emissions so they could be cheating on how clean their grid is getting with all of this wind and solar nice as well (laughs) you know so there are those issues too um and yeah it just it creates those cascading problems and i think just from like sort of a first principles thing you can sort of see why people are now starting to have these conversations about like well how do we do reliability like this is why we need batteries and wind and solar for Mm -hmm. example. I mean, batteries aren't generation in the same way that like canned corn isn't a cornfield, Mm -hmm. right? Like, you know, that's sort of the difference there, which isn't to say that they're useless, right? Like we need battery technology, but it's not going to solve the fundamental problems we Mm -hmm. have here.
2: Do these people know, and by these people, I mean the folks that are out there hawking uh, wind and solar constantly do they know it's it's not like long term viable and they're just, you know, promoting it for the
0: I mean, this is this is uh, it's it's hard as as we're learning with uh, certain litigation um, right now. It's hard to prove who knows what and when many hmm. um, <laughs> such many such cases, yeah, many such cases. Um, you know, and uh, so I can't I can't read those people's minds. Some of them are true believers, mm-hmm. you know, some of them like are just like you're wrong, you're crazy, you don't get it, we're about to change the world. And others are a little more honest and they're like, okay, like what do we do with this system? Yeah. Like what do, how do how do we maintain reliability? And I think that there is now growing doubt both in the Anglosphere and in Europe about whether or not this can actually be pulled off.
2: Maybe an easier um, question to answer is like how much, of our growth in wind and solar do you think at this point it's just political inertia
0: i think right now it's all subsidies yeah right i think that's it's just you know the inflation reduction act is like we're just going to cover these production tax credits indefinitely Mm. which is a wild commitment for the federal government to make right because who's not going to sign up for a project be like yeah give me one of those they might not even be serious about ever doing it but you could at least like see if you can't cash in
1: my my understanding too is that green energy is like affirmative action it it doesn't just get subsidized or incentivized once there's special programs at every stage of the process from the mining of certain required minerals to the production of solar cells and windmills to you know tax abatements for their placement to subsidization for usage and and everything in between is is that accurate
0: yeah i mean i'd want to look at exactly what the the mining stuff is. We've just, frankly, offshored a lot of that. Mm-hmm. Mine. It's basically illegal to start mining something new in America. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, um, we've done that with a lot of things. We've made a lot of industrial developments functionally illegal mm-hmm. here. And that's why we're so reliant on China for these supply chains. Right. I mean, to its credit, the Biden administration has tried to be like, well, where are we going to mine for lithium, and how do we incentivize that? Because we need that for EVs. We need. Yeah, aren't
1: they trying to do it in Arizona? And aren't there like Chinese bot farm Facebook groups that are trying to agitate against? It? I wouldn't
0: be surprised <laughs> if, there, if there if there was. I mean, but I mean, who knows? Like, who needs them when you have the Sierra Club? You know, like really, like the calls coming from inside the house. You know, with the the environmental movement's in a really difficult place where. They are saying they want to solve these climate change problems, but they are operating under like intellectual premises that don't scale. And so they're really you can see that when they're like, well, we want all of this wind and solar. And then they're like, by the way, our chapter is fighting this. Our chapters are fighting this everywhere, all over the country, all at once, wherever you want to build something. And that's true, not just for wind and solar, but Mm -hmm. all of these other projects.
1: They just don't want you to the, the the. some total of their ideology, whether it is affirmatively thought so as such, and in some cases it is, is we don't want you to consume energy.
0: Yeah, I'd say that's definitely true. Um, I mean, that was way more explicitly true in the 60s and 70s. Mm. It is now like a little more sotto yeah. Um
1: <laughs> What about hydroelectric? Does it have the same problems as wind and solar?
0: Uh, Hydro is great. Hydro is great. Baseload power. I mean, the only thing you have to worry about are like droughts and stuff like that. Like there's no perfect power generator mm-hmm. you know um but it's not clear that we can like radically expand um our hydro capacity we might be able to uprate some things in other words like get more out of what we've already got mm-hmm. um well and that's a huge infrastructure
2: project and we're not very good at those right yeah
0: we i mean we're really suffering um yeah we're really suffering to pull stuff like that off so i have a lot of love for hydro you know mm-hmm. i think it's great um and i guess
1: it would be kind of inversely correlated to peak solar like if you have a sustained period of very high solar there might be less water in the in the dam whereas if you know you have a lot of cloud cover there's more i mean it does does it relate that way yeah
0: i don't know i i'm not um i'd want I actually want to talk to some like uh energy analysts and some meteorologists about mm-hmm. that like that's an interesting question like when california's solar is like historically kicking ass is it also when they're in the middle of a drought? You mm-hmm. <laughs> know, um, is that, and how true is that? Mm-hmm. I think that would be an interesting uh, relationship yeah. to look at, but I can't speak on
1: it. But of course, this is all brass tacks. Why does nuclear solve all these problems and mm-hmm. why is it the greatest thing
2: ever?
0: Yeah, why is it the greatest thing ever? Um, So, nuclear, I mean, you guys just had a really fantastic episode with Isaiah Taylor about this. So, I encourage everybody, if you're listening to me and you haven't listened to that, go listen to that because he does a great job of explaining some of it. But it's clean and you get a, ton of power out of it for very little material, right? So, a pellet of uranium can power an American life cradle to grave. One of those is about the size of a gummy bear. Nice. Right? And it's pretty cool. Yeah. Um and uh it could help us meet all of our like climate change goals just by creating clean energy. I'm not a climate hawk, I'm a grid hawk, right? Like I've written articles for Compact like defending coal, yeah. you know. Um but I do think that it is important for local communities to have like breathable, clean air. Like, I think that is more important because like solving global problems is really hard. Nuclear can also solve a lot of like local, national problems. And that's important because if we want to like reshore anything, or we want to have these – Reindustrialized sectors of our country, then they're going to need a lot of cheap, clean power to do what they want to do.
2: I talked about this a little bit with Isaiah, but I'd be curious to go um, deeper on it. What are some of the, um, you know, uh, maybe it's opinions that politicians have, maybe it's uh, local officials, voting citizens. Mm-hmm. Um, wh- why have we seen a, a decline in, Um, Nuclear plants being built, um, Mm -hmm. used, why are they shutting down?
0: Yeah. So there are a few sort of colliding reasons for that in the post-war era um, leading up into the 70s. And one of the reasons for it is simply that the electricity sector stops growing demand. Right? So for three decades in a row, the utility industry was financing plants by saying we're going to charge this to your rate base you know like you the customer will pay for it but there's going to be so much more power and so much more cheaply that you won't really feel it mm. and so they would commission these big power plants to satisfy demand that was the business case for big power plants and in the 60 50s 60s 70s there was anxiety about how much oil we were going to have like how much coal could we have um you uh Creating nuclear power might be a way out of some of these fears, right? So there is a big push for that. But then once you get to the 70s, like that demand growth just plummets to like 1%. It's crazy. So like you have this whole legacy from the early 1900s to like the 70s. That's like the premise for utilities. I found this quote of this one utility manager who said, you know, being a load calculator was the easiest job in the world. All you needed was a straight edge. You just <laughs> angle it upward, you know, and be like, there it'll be, you know. Um, and so that stops. So the business case starts to fall apart, right? Like customers get mad when they're like, why are you building this big ass thing? Mm-hmm. And we don't need it. Um, on top of that, you have hugely aggressive shifts in regulation and that shift begins in the sort of final years of the Atomic Energy Commission. They adopt what's called the linear no threshold model of like radiation exposure, which basically means any exposure to radiation could potentially be re- lethal. Mm-hmm. Which, I mean, it's just not true. It's just not true, right? It's basically like pretend that your body never heals. Now it's dangerous, right? So that's like the premise there. And there are political reasons why that gets uh, adopted. Um, I'm not going to get into that right now because that's like this whole other like side plot. That's a side quest. But it turns into this thing called um, Alera or as low as as reasonably achievable. Um, That's what that AEC rolls out. Now, if you're saying we want radiation as low as reasonably achievable, how would you design something? to someone else's idea of what's reasonable mm-hmm. when it has to be a specific criterion because you have to execute. You're an engineer. You have to design it. It has to hit a certain threshold. You go do something else. Right. You go do so, or, <laughs> or you start to see plants getting torn apart and revised mid-construction, which does happen. So over the 60s into the 70s, labor costs at nuclear plants go up something like 137%. I mean that's wild. In 1978, new requirements to nuclear were added at a rate of 1.5 new regulations per working day. Wow. I mean, who could make any money like in that environment? Who could handle all that? So there's that. There is the dawn of the environmental movement, which is incredibly hostile to nuclear because it sees it uh and not for no reason as part and part uh part and parcel of the basically military-industrial complex, the man, basically, the administrative state. Like, that's what it's seeing when it sees nuclear. And it relates it to the bomb because a lot of people matriculate from the anti-war movement into the environmental movement, Mm. you know? And it doesn't help that, like, utilities were largely run by sort of, like, cagey, secretive, hostile engineers who were just like, shut up and let us handle it, yeah, right? I mean, no American likes being told that. They're like, hey, don't step on my blue suede shoes. Mm -hmm. Right. Like that's the so they're there's they're sort of grinding against, I think, certain instincts that we have towards like liberty, decentralization and transparency.
2: So it's not as much about the nuclear waste, per se, as it is about the.
0: Yeah. Yeah. The waste is the best part. It's like the most managed waste in the world. Yeah. No industry handles its waste. The waste Isn't the most waste. of
1: ours on like a one mile plot of land in New Mexico or something? So
0: you can fit all of the civilian nuclear waste uh, that has ever existed in America on top of itself and put it in a football field. So that's like since the 50s. Yeah. That's pretty wild. You yeah. know, <laughs> ONG, they store their waste in the air. Right. Like that's what's ONG? What's, so oil and gas. Yeah. Right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Like that's that's what happens there. And I'm not. I'm, hey, I got a lot of love for O&G. O yeah. Right. Like I love those guys. Um. But that's the reality there. You know, the waste is, is contained Um. in nuclear. So then sort of the third thing that sort of makes it non viable. Not third. I don't. What number are we on now? It doesn't really matter. Uh, Is that the markets don't incentivize anybody to build it. Also, like a lot of utilities went bankrupt trying to finance nuclear plants in the 60s and 70s. And so they're all skittish like. Utilities aren't like cutting edge. We'll try this out. They're like deeply conservative and freaked out, mm-hmm. you know, and that's why everybody's pivoting towards small modular reactors right now, because they're like, maybe we can shrink nuclear to the point where like we can deliver it on time and on budget and it can play well in the markets mm-hmm. because it's not this big baseload commitment.
1: Mm-hmm. What um, what do the technological innovations happening in the nuclear industry change in terms of this fundamental calculus. You mentioned the small modular reactors. Yeah. Play that out for me.
0: Yeah. So I have no idea is like the real answer to that. And anybody who says they do have an idea is like selling you their book, you know, like, and that's good for them. Did Isaiah I mean, sell you his it, book? You know, no. know <laughs> not written a no. book.
1: <laughs> no, um, as in like, yeah, you know, conceptually.
0: Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. And hey, <laughs> I love his idea of like, you know, enabling offshore oil and gas production through the use of nuclear technology. My buddy Mark Heineman at Franklin Mountain Energy, you know, a fracking firm in Colorado, is working on that type of thing for fire to Like, love that dude. Um, so I love all that. I want everyone to win because that would be great, right? Like, that is the world I want for nuclear. Everyone wins. But I don't know how many of these designs are vaporware or the real deal. And some of that won't even depend on the design. It'll be about who can put together the better supply mm-hmm. chain. You know, who can who can execute that. And um, as far as the technological differences, like, (coughs) I mean, yeah, sure. Like a reactor on paper (laughs) will always be better than something that exists in the real world because it's like totally theoretical. And I'm not knocking anybody working on advanced SMRs right now. I'm just saying it's too early to tell, right? Like I'm a doubting Thomas. Like until my hand is halfway through that wound in Christ's side, I'm not going to believe I'm looking at him. You know, like that's how I am with SMRs. I'm like, I don't know.
1: Yeah. Well, then I guess what's the, you know, one simple trick or dramatic generation long policy shifts that need to happen to make a more conventional um, nuclear reactor a much more significant part of America's baseload power?
0: Yeah. So I think we really need to, curtail and get rid of uh, some of these production tax credits. I mean, now they've expanded. One thing that the Inflation Reduction Act did do is that it folded nuclear into those uh, energy credit systems. So now they're clean energy credits, right? So the markets aren't going to kill nuclear in the same way that they used to. But that being said, it's not clear how those are going to get doled out. And also, I just don't think the taxpayer should have to foot the bill in perpetuity for this stuff. I still don't like that. That's not a viable model to me. So we need to fix the markets um, in order to do that. Uh, uh, we need to restructure the NRC's radiation exposure things. We just need to put them at like a hard dose limit. It's like, this is this is what we think is dangerous, don't do this. And then have everybody build to that spec. One of my like ideas I pull from Jack Devaney uh, over at Thorcon, he has this great idea of the, the Proto Park, where we take the Hanford site in, in Washington, and turn it into a place where nuclear plant, nuclear reactor designers can make prototypes of their plants. Like the federal government already has the security there. There's already hookup to the grid there. We already have waste management there. So we could actually start building engineering discipline and experience doing all of these things. Um, and then, then we might say we're going to offer you preferred financing through our loan office as the federal government for anybody that has successful tests there, and only if you're going to build five or more reactors, because nuclear benefits as a complex engineering project more from repetition than it does from innovation, right? So you need to get really good at building it to drive the cost down. Okay, then here's sort of like my real pie in the sky thing, as if like the (laughs) protopark isn't enough is I think we need an atoms for peace 2.0, right? So we need to have non-proliferation agreements that also give developing countries uh, civilian nuclear technology because otherwise they're just going to build coal plants or Russia and China who are eating our lunch internationally. Like Russia has the most international builds of anybody. They're killing it, right? Um, They're just going to come in and, and build there anyway. So it's like, do we want to be a part of the solution here or do we want to be defensive, right? And to do that, I think we would need sort of one big and one small reactor type that we can offer countries because not every country needs like a huge honking AP1000 like we yeah, have at Swaziland
1: Florida. does not need <clears> that.
0: doesn't need that, but Poland does and yeah. they want it from Westinghouse. So I think we should formalize that. We should see who's like the best winner of the SMRs and then take the Westinghouse AP1K And, you know, the most successful SMR build and start selling them to different countries and being like, this is the deal with nuclear weapons. And then let's help you replace those coal plants or instead of building coal plants, build some nuclear. Because I think a wealthier world is ultimately going to be a safer one. And most of the emissions growth that we're seeing now is coming from countries that want a Western standard of living and good for them. Of course they do. If I was living there, I would be a nationalist who wants that for my country. I don't think that's that hard to understand. So we need to figure out how to get in that game because right now we're losing. And I don't think there's any single reason that we should.
1: Talk to me about the personnel problem here. Do we have the engineering talent domestically in the United States in order to see a new era of nuclear power proliferation?
0: If we were about to say, like, let's go uh, all gas, no brakes right now. No, we'd have to grow it. Um, But then you don't really need like overnight everybody anyway. You'd have to grow that. So the most important thing right now is that we don't lose what we learned at the Vogel plant in Georgia.
1: Talk to me about that.
0: Right. So basically, luckily, we are building abroad in Poland, the Mm -hmm. AP1000. We might build a few other places, Mm -hmm. but Poland wants to phase out its coal plants Mm -hmm. and they want nuclear energy. RAP1000 design from Westinghouse is how they're going to do that. We're about to find out how many people that worked on the Georgia reactors, Vogel 3 and 4. Um, this
1: is Georgia the country, not Georgia the state. This is
0: Georgia the state.
1: Oh, this is Georgia the state. state. Yeah, yeah.
0: Um, this is Georgia you would the state. know
2: that if you listen yeah, had listened to the Isaiah Taylor yeah. episode. <laughs> Come on, man. It came out six hours ago. Leave me alone. <laughs>
0: oh. um, but um, so that's the most recent uh, you know full conception of a nuclear plan America has had since, uh, in like 30, 40 years or something like that. And was it like pulling teeth to make it happen? Yeah. Oh yeah. It went way over budget, went way over time. Yeah. It was like
2: double the budget. Yeah. Right? It was, it ended was up rough.
0: With? Um, right. And there are also reasons that have nothing to do with the regulator for that or anything. There were actually problems with how that project got executed. Um, So I don't want to just pin it all on, oh, if only we got the administrative state out of the way or got it in our favor that it would all be good. You still need to do things right. So the last thing we want to do is lose the people that learned how to build that because then we are doing first of a kind again and we are not getting economies of repetition and scale. So we're about to find out how many of them are going to be willing to travel to Poland, right? And then we want to grow that workforce from there. And we want to see, okay, how many of these engineers can do this? How many more do we need? And what that looks like, I don't know. I think it's really difficult to do sort of like top-down we need this many engineers. We're going to pull them from these schools. Things like maybe we could have incentives at like MIT and stuff like that. It's something that I haven't like looked into completely because I'm trying to not add the whole other problem of higher ed to the amount of annoying, difficult labyrinthine things that I pay attention to every day. Um, But that might be one of them that I just need to like bite the bullet and focus on. So that to me uh, is one of the major obstacles for, growing a nuclear workforce is just maintaining the workforce we just acquired for executing Vogel.
1: who in the world is getting energy policy right
0: uh well it's definitely not europe right like europe is like a preview to the horror movie that could become us um so we don't want to do whatever they're doing um to me uh getting it right i mean i don't want to sing the chinese economies praises uh because it's not a system i'd like to live in but they're not screwing around when it comes to energy like they know what they're doing
1: you know and what does that look like in implementation right so
0: out of the 50 something nuclear reactors being built in the world china's building 23 of them okay right um they say they're gonna cut back on building coal plants but that is probably unlikely if they're gonna stay as power hungry i mean predictions are fragile you never know Um, Either way, but the dirty secret, one of the many dirty secrets about how energy works in China is that their renewables don't decarbonize even in the light way that ours do because of the way their high-voltage transmission lines are sited, where they're sited and how all that works. It tends to incentivize greater investment in coal to balance load.
1: Because they don't have the same natural gas supplies that we do.
0: Yeah, they don't have the same natural gas supplies. Mm -hmm. I mean, they are doing- So for them,
1: it's like- coal, solar, nuclear, that's it. They don't have the LNG. Yeah,
0: yeah I mean they have some pipelines, right? It's mm-hmm. not like they have nothing, but it is not like a substantial portion of their grid in the way it is ours. Mm-hmm. You know. Um it's just it, and they don't have the environmental regulations so they can be like, yeah, we'll just build a coal plant. When mm-hmm. you're joking. What are you silly, my guy? Mm-hmm. Send it.
1: Yeah. You know. Yeah. One of the other reasons I think China is an interesting comparison point is because most of Europe doesn't have this problem and, and really no other countries other than maybe China and India do, which is um, China's a very large country mm-hmm. um, uh, and, and the United States is as well. What are some of the quirks in energy policy that have to do with the you know giant distributions and population density that we have in the United States where you have you know rural Kansas compared to manhattan what are some of the policy quirks that come out of that uh reality
0: yeah it's really hard to do one size fits all Mm -hmm. you know you can't just do like top-down mandates i mean we rely on incentives and stuff like that because of our extended republican structure you know it can't just federal government can't just be like states here's what you're doing and it's exactly this because no state's going to put up with that Mm -hmm. you know it's like get ready for like multiple years of supreme court (laughs) uh uh, time right Mm -hmm. um and I would say that that makes it uh, a challenge to figure out sort of what's good for everybody and how to get everybody on side. Yeah. You know,
1: do you think that if we started to get nuclear policy right, that it would start a competition regulatorily in the public sphere, economically between the oil and gas sector and the nuclear industry?
0: So this is interesting. I've talked to, um, It depends on what segment of the oil and gas industry. So I know plenty of dudes that GOP
1: fracking donors. How about them?
0: (laughs) Yeah. Fracking donors are fine with it. Why? Well, because they're just like, well, people are going to, like, we got to send LNG to Europe. People still need fertilizer. Like, this isn't electricity, while it's big in America, isn't the only thing that people need our product for. Right. Also, a lot of people that work in fracking are engineers and they're like, yo, nuclear is sick. <laughs> <laughs> They'll figure it yeah, out. They're like, like, this yeah. is cool. Yeah. Um, so they get that and they're sympathetic to that. Natural gas plant owners in these markets have a very different perspective on it. In Texas, they're like, nobody move in here with reliable base load. We love scarcity pricing. Yeah. We
1: love it when it's tough to get yeah, power. Are the natural gas people lobbying for more wind and solar
0: credits? dude, that has happened. really yeah, yeah wow. that has happened, you know and the, and I' like I don't think there's a need for it to be like conspiratorial or anything. They're just like, yeah, this suits our needs, right This is great for us. Volatility is good for us is what a lot of them think.
1: Yeah. Final question. How optimistic are you that the left will be useful at all? To energy prosperity politically this coming decade? So,
0: I have, um, as somebody who sort of like uh, walks in both worlds still, I can say that I think I have more hope than a lot of my other compatriots. You're always gonna get loonies out there. And because, you know, squeaky wheels get the grease, right? And mm-hmm. that's how a lot of activists make their bread and butter. And I still think that uh, we need to like destroy the legacy environmental movement in this country. So, mm-hmm. I don't think they'll ever be too side. But they could surprise us. You know, I'm hearing some whisperings that the younger members in like the Sierra Club aren't happy with the anti-nuclear stance, which is great. I hope they change their minds. But when I look at guys like Joe Manchin or just like any centrist Democrat who, you know, maybe is in like a purple district or something like that, or is just like a more reasonable, practical person. Or is like a serious person who's like, I really do actually care about the climate change thing. And I don't necessarily think we need to reduce energy consumption or anything like that. Like, I just want to solve that. I think that they'll be amenable. Does that mean it'll work out? Not necessarily. But when I deal with the people at like the Breakthrough Institute or whatever, you know, they have a huge overlap with some of the things that even like R Street or Heritage rolls out and say what they want. You know, like Breakthrough is like a progressive California, you know, like Promethean think tank. And they're like, yeah, uh, we would get way more from deregulating certain things than using tax subsidies to build certain things. And I'm like, great. That's awesome. You know, we're, we're seeing that overlap come to life. And I also think that, um, you know, there's going to need to be a new software update in what the thing is to worry about. Um, and i think that climate change's time will expire eventually. Um, And I don't know what software will get put in the NPCs, but we'll find out. And hopefully it will be one that doesn't involve energy policy.
1: And where can people keep up with everything that you're doing?
0: Yeah. So you can sign up for the newsletter, which is free uh, five days a week. It's a daily digest of what's new in the world of energy and energy politics at gridbrief.com. You can find me on Twitter at Nuke Barbarian. And you can find my podcast, uh, Nuclear Barbarians, wherever podcasts are heard.
1: And a little bit more specifically, uh, a lot of staffers on Capitol Hill listen to our podcast. Uh, how can they maybe reach out to you and what should they call you for in terms of helping them do the job that they do?
0: Yeah. So that's a great question. Um, if you want to talk about like what's going on with the grid or where regulation should or shouldn't go with that, feel free to DM me. My DMs are open. Is basically the way to reach out to me. I'm also on LinkedIn, if that's better or easier, you know, (laughs) uh, for anybody, you can find me there as well too.
1: Fantastic. Well, Emmett, thank you for everything you do. I think that, um, the 2020s and 2030s are going to be less the era of, you know, $200 million think tanks and much more individual policy entrepreneurs like yourself. It's been really cool to see you get more and more famous. I was one of the early subscribers to good brief. Um, thank you for everything that you do.
0: Yeah. Hey, uh, first time, long time. It was great to be here, fellas.
1: Hopefully you guys enjoyed that. I really highly recommend subscribing to grid brief, even though, uh, my email client keeps on trying to send it to spam. Uh, the radical left is coming after Emmett Penny. You must go subscribe, send power his way. Um, his Twitter is always a ton of fun. Um, it's nuke barbarian. And in general, This is the issue that got me interested in politics to begin with. I read Alex Epstein's The Moral Case for Fossil Fuels when I was a freshman in college and it changed my life. I highly recommend that you get engaged on this issue because no matter what you want to do politically, energy tends to be at the root of it. Uh, Be sure to go to AmericanMoment.org to find everything that we have cooking. Be sure to rate and review this podcast, five stars only. It really does help us out in the rankings. Be sure to subscribe on YouTube. Uh, Follow us on social media at ammoment.org. You can find clips of this show floating around. You can follow me on Twitter at ssharmaus and Nick at Nick S. Solheim. And uh, we'll see you guys next week. We're at like 120-something episodes now. I have no idea why you guys keep listening, but you do. Thank you. We'll see you soon. Moment of Truth is an American Moment Studios production filmed at the Conservative Partnership Center. Our podcast is produced and edited by Jake Mercier and Jared Cummings. Our intro music is A Minor Struggle by Ryan Serenich. Don't forget to like and subscribe on all platforms, and you can go to AmericanMoment.org to learn more.